You're going to um, either turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, or you can listen, just listen. It'll also be on the screen behind me. We are almost finished with this series um, on the letters to the Thessalonian church. I, without really thinking, had just planned on jumping into a fairly long series on Ecclesiastes. Uh, bright and sunny outside, felt like a good time to talk about how everything is meaningless. Um, and then I realized children are here, upper elementary and above. So I was like, maybe third graders don't need that. Um, so we'll boot that to the fall um, into the darkness of winter. Um, so we're going to be in these letters a couple more times, and then we'll move on. I do want to encourage you, um, family worship is... We've done it one other time, done a couple other times. You may be like, I have questions and objections. Um, you want to be here. Jesus uh, loves kids. In the Gospels, it's very clear that the kids love him. And you may say, that's fine. I can love them from several buildings away. Um, I get that. Um, it's not going to be like just throwing kids in this room and they're going to sit. I'm going to preach for 40 minutes. That's not what's going to happen. It's going to be really different. And uh, you may say, like, I, I am mature. I need, you know, I need this. And what I'd sort of push back to you is, if you're mature in Jesus, you actually are one of the best equipped to have some change here and to accommodate their immaturity. Does that make sense? So it's not every week. Um, it's going to be a fun week, um, and we're going to do a couple of different things to make that both accessible and fun for them, and hopefully meaningful worship experience, not just for families, but for our church as a family. Does that make sense? Okay, if you're intrigued, you just got to come. All right, 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion. So that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit 
and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this, your word, that by the, le- the, the hand and the letters of a man, the very words of God have been spoken to us. I pray that our eyes would be open, our ears would be open, our hearts would be soft, that we would hear and receive and obey. Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be stirred to love you and our lives would be rooted in your good comfort and hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, This passage is one of the most obscure, difficult to understand passages in the New Testament. In all of Paul's writings, uh, this has the, the widest range of interpretations and commentary. This figure of the man of lawlessness is one that sort of captures the imagination. Uh, it's, it's something that pretty much everybody who, who reads this uh, throughout time has thoughts about who this person is, the man of lawlessness, otherwise and otherwhere identified as what we might call antichrist or false Christ. And people have been all over the map about who this could possibly be. And this becomes sort of the immediate uh, fixation as you read this passage oftentimes. How do we figure out who this person was? Because remember, Paul is writing to a particular place, to particular people at a particular time. Was he talking about somebody that they were, were seeing? We know the Apostle John already says the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. Is this somebody who was? Is this somebody who is? And this, or is this somebody who will be? Inevitably, as you sort of read through time, people are just inclined to believe, well, obviously this is about somebody who is. It's somebody in my day, obviously. Uh, unfortunately, everybody has said that for like 2,000 years. And to one degree or another, appears to probably be wrong. You know, it, it, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, plenty of the reformers are pretty sure that the Pope is the Antichrist. Maybe they, they speak a little more broadly and say the papacy, the office of the Pope, is the Antichrist. And at the exact same time, the Catholics and the Counter-Reformation are like, Martin Luther is definitely the Antichrist. And this is sort of how it goes, right? This long discussion of who is this man of lawlessness that rises up to deceive, to rebel, to push against the cause of God in the world. On top of that, there's this figure that's unnamed. You may have even just missed it as we we read over this. There's this person in one part or force in another part 
of this passage that seems to be holding the man of lawlessness back. The person who is restraining the work of the man of lawlessness in the world. And there are so many options about who that is or what that is. People can't even agree on if whether that's a good force or if it's actually the sneaky old devil himself kind of holding his chips back until he can push them in later. So when I tell you that this passage is one of the most difficult and obscure passages in the Pauline writing, I'm telling you that as somebody who has searched and searched for lots of people's opinions on this text. And it is worthwhile, it is interesting to try to dissect the kind of options of who those figures are in this text. That is not what I'm going to do today. I'm not going to put up for you the, the sort of graphic of how to discern the Antichrist. Because I'm not really confident in my ability to do that. On top of that, I don't think it's the main point of this passage. See, people get really involved in this task because it's interesting. They build whole systems of doctrine around the identification of the man of lawlessness, and they build all of their sort of political imagination, their, their social worrying infused with religious language around this figure, and that is precisely not the point of what Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church in this letter. Paul's point is to draw your attention elsewhere. Now, this figure, whether they are past, present, or future, the, the work that they are going to be involved in, have been involved in, whatever, is worth paying attention to. The work of this man of lawlessness is worth examining. The way that Paul describes this figure in the world. First of all, we should notice the title that Paul gives them. Man of lawlessness. And this is really important to understand where the forces of evil will want to pull you. Where, where this person wants to lead you. It is away from the ordering and the law of God. It is also, we would say, a pushing against the good laws at work in society. In the places where, where law functions properly, where laws on our books are actually reflective of divine justice and divine goodness, this kind of spirit would push against that as well. This is a sort of spirit of rebellion and anarchy that says, at least for this person and all who follow him, I am above the law. The law has no bearing on me. The law is for other people. The law is a hindrance to my power, to my control, to my agenda. Therefore, forsake the law. 
The law should be shed. And it does not apply to me or to my followers. Now you can see this sort of spirit, again, taking the instruction of John in the, in the epistle to his first epistle, 1 John, that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. You can see this spirit at work in a variety of ways and, and venues. The temptation to believe that God's law does not apply to me. That God's law is restrictive, it ought to be rebelled against, that I am exempt. And the spirit that says any sort of good law in the land is something that should be resisted. Lawlessness is not a mark of God's kingdom. Christians have sometimes in uh, praise of the freedom of God in Christ, the work of grace in the world, have said law is bad. We're, we're, we don't have to deal with law anymore. But the law of God is good. Our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It is all about the goodness of the law. The law is good for what it does. If you view the law as the thing, as a ladder upon which you can climb up by your own good work and ascend to God's presence, the law is bad. But the law does good for people because it clearly delineates for us what is right and what is wrong and where the safety of God's goodness is. Lawlessness is not a mark of the kingdom of God. Jesus clarifies that in all of his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of, in many ways, the law's good work to expose our hearts. So if something is leading you towards lawlessness, you ought to take note and take alarm and run in the other direction. Now this sort of connects to what is the nature of this man of lawlessness's work. In addition to being lawless, is it work based around deception rather than coercion? It's based around the fooling of your mind, the misleading of your heart, rather than just brute power. Paul does not say you should watch out for the force of the empire. The Thessalonians are very clear about the power of the empire. But what they ought to be aware of, be on guard against, is the deception of the law, the man of lawlessness. And this is a, a sobering reminder because what Paul describes is that the, this sort of spirit of lawlessness and work in the world, it, it will come for you too. It will come after you. And we tend to sort of put our eyes and, and our, our apocalyptic imaginations towards like this invading power or government gone wrong and say to come and kill people, which bad, that's bad. But what Paul tells you you should be concerned about here is not that kind of enemy, but the kind of enemy for whom you open the door yourself 
and you say, come have a seat at my table. This person's ministry, a false ministry, a destructive ministry, has signs and wonders with it. How easily are you and I often convinced and led away just because of the mere appearance of supernatural power or sounding good or feeling good? We should expect that this ministry, this false ministry of deception is clothed and shrouded in language of believers. That's how deception would work. Deception is probably not going to come knocking on your door and say to you, Hi, Jesus, forget him. Let's do this other thing. Because you can spot that one. I believe in you. You and I would be like, go to the neighbor's. Well, maybe don't say that, but you know what I mean. We can spot that one. We understand that one. Deception comes to you and says, this is actually the way that Jesus would have you behave and be in the world. And it's beguiling. It's tricky. It wins your heart and takes your mind. This is the way that the man of lawlessness works. And ultimately, the end of what the man of lawlessness does in his ministry and his power is what's described here. That he sets himself up and says that he ought to be worshipped as a god. That the temples of the world ought to be full of his own power and presence. It is diversion, ultimately, away from love and honor and worship of the true God and giving it over to this one. You don't get to that place where you are willing to give this false God love and honor and worship immediately and right away. You get there step by step in gradations. So that all of a sudden you are landing somewhere where you never thought you would be, worshiping and honoring, serving that which you once thought was a representation of the real God. And now can see is hungry for your affections in a way that doesn't even allow space for any of your God. The man of lawlessness says, Put your hope in me. Only I can save you. And the road in that direction is paved with deception. So you and I ought to be looking out for, not for the one with the most guns, military power, whatever, the danger talked about here is for the smoothest talker, the one who stirs your affections, the one who might lie to you as the Thessalonians were lied to in a spirit, in a letter, whispered the false truth that Jesus has already come and will not take care of you anymore, but only this one will. That's what you watch out for. 
And there is a very, very sober warning here. That if you, at some point, God gives you what you have chosen and judges you and lets delusion, sends delusion to you so that you will be entombed in the fate that you have chosen. Now this is, this is unsettling. Listen to the words so you don't think I'm making this up. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God issues a word of judgment so that the lie that you have chosen is the lie that you are sealed in. Now this is in keeping with the whole biblical story. One of the most frequently quoted Old Testament prophecies in the Gospels is a prophecy from Isaiah where Isaiah is, is told that in seeing you would not be able to see and hearing you would not be able to hear that that is judgment that God is sending with Jesus. Now notice what he's saying here. He's not saying you could be sitting there sort of believing in Jesus, doing good, and then all of a sudden God flips a switch and you're like, now I reject him. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you, in the time that was available to you, have rejected the truth. You did not believe the truth. And then God shuts the door behind you. It's a door you yourself chose to exit and God shuts behind you as a judgment. That is a sobering warning. And I don't want to take the edge off that warning and say, this is why this is not a warning. It is a warning. So when the scriptures repeatedly say to its readers, to its hearers, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. They mean it. This is especially important for church people to hear. This is a church letter. It is, especially if you have grown up as a church person, sitting in the pews time and time and time again, rejecting and rejecting and rejecting and rejecting the truth. There is a warning with every rejection. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And we should hear Paul's warning here. Now, the point of this passage is not to terrify you. It is not to make you paranoid, fearful people. That is unfortunately 
a lot of what happens when people open the Bible and they read the book of Revelation, they read 2 Thessalonians 2 or 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, they see these talks about the end of all things and they are afraid. But the, the run of Paul's argument is not fear. It is the opposite. What he says immediately after this discussion it says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Are all people who are hearing these words being warned? Absolutely. But it is not a warning delivered in the spirit of fear, but in the assurance that God is at work in you. <coughs> God has chosen you, Thessalonian church. God has chosen you. God is at work in the world. Is the spirit of Antichrist in the world? Is the man of lawlessness being held back for the proper time? Yes, Thessalonian church. Yes, Valley Hope. However, God is at work in the world. And this is not a to and fro, back and forth contest between the man of lawlessness, the work of Satan, and God. God is the supremely powerful figure in this text, such that when the man of lawlessness is finally and fully revealed and Jesus returns, what happens? Earlier in the passage, Paul says he destroys him with the breath of his mouth as if he was nothing. Your eyes are meant to be fixed on Jesus. If you are a, a Christian hearing this passage, you are not meant to pull out your notebook of end times prophecies and write down all of your dream horrors down on the page and meditate on how how dangerous and deadly and scary everything is because the Thessalonians are facing the power of the Roman Empire arrayed against them, contemplating their death. And Paul's message to them is not be afraid, be very afraid. It is keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus because he has got all of this in his hands. If you are worried about the power of an invasive government or this supernatural figure who will do miracles and they're going to come into your house at night, be afraid no more. This Jesus is in control of all of human history and has set his gracious purposes on your head so that you do not need to be afraid of anyone at any time in any place. The antidote to the man of lawlessness is false ministry, rebellion against God, is to fix your eyes on Jesus. 
you will be preserved from any attempts at deception because when you hear somebody else say, put your hopes in me instead, you will say, I could never hope in anyone but Jesus. This is a liar. This is a fraud and a fake because only Jesus gets to hold my hope. Only Jesus is the one who could trample death. Only Jesus is the one who could put me in the center of the life of God himself. He is the one who walks me through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the one who sets his boundaries of goodness around me. His law is the good law of the whole world. I could never hope in anybody but Jesus. And so the Thessalonian church is invited to the same thing that you and I are. We don't have to be frantic, worried, obsessed people parsing the news out for who's the one who's going to come out and get us. Because one person has come and gotten you. And that's the only one that matters. His name is Jesus. So what does that do to us? The objects, the people, the children of his good grace. It quiets our anxious heart. It lays claim on everything that we are. All of our desires, our affections, our time, our attractions, Everything that we are, he lays claim on us. And we are settled under his good care. This is not a promise that nothing will go wrong. It is a promise that very often things will go very badly. And yet the very worst of life cannot undo what the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the ruler of history and time itself, has done, is doing, and will do for his people forever. Take heart, because Jesus wins the day. If you are here today, and you are realizing that you have heard the sort of beckoning spirit of Antichrist in the world. Not, not in those people over there, not the bad people over there, all those other ones that you could point to, the sinners. If you've heard the beckoning of Antichrist bidding you to forsake the living God in pursuit of hope anywhere else, in the quiet habits and moments of your life and in your heart, you've begun to drift. Your focus has gone fuzzy. You have lost sight of Jesus. The Lord is being gracious to you this morning, right now. Because he is calling you to fix your eyes back on him. And let him be the Lord of your life Again, let him be the place where once more you find shelter and healing and wholeness. 
Repent. Give it up. Come home. And if today you are realizing that all of your confidence has really been in your ability to manage outcomes and circumstances, where your confidence has been in an arrangement of job circumstances, political circumstances, cultural circumstances, and you have never actually heard the good news of Jesus and responded to him, today is the day. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart, but instead repent and believe. And he will hold you until the very end, no matter what stands between this time and that one. All of the enemies of your soul are but for him a breath away from annihilation. And he will hold you forever. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, I pray that today our, our eyes, our gaze would be turned to you, that our hopes would be in you. God, would you help us to spot the work of deception in our life, in our midst, in our church, in our culture, that would draw us with warm words, with fancy demonstrations, to false signs and wonders, and a fickle hope. Help us to see those lies for what they are, and to put our trust in you and you alone. Father, for anyone who is in here who has heard the good news of Jesus' conquest of sin and death, who by his life, death, and resurrection has triumphed for all time for his people and even for them and has never responded to that good news I pray that today they would know that grace has come for them. The gift of God has come for them. And that God has set his affections on them that they might be saved. Father, would you soften their hearts and turn their feet homeward towards you? We thank you, Jesus for your work, steady and sure, trustworthy and true. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.